0: It's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, and Craig and everyone for your gracious welcome to me. You have some amazing artists, I will say, first and foremost, so I think we need to give those folks a hand again. This is pretty good, amazing, and in particular, I really like the, uh, the, the I almost said pear, I had a pear this morning, um, the pearl and the oyster there, it's beautiful stuff, it reminds me of so many vacation Bible schools that I've been through and have my kids have gone through in their life, so Praise the Lord, may the Lord bless your efforts tonight. Please join me in prayer as we seek the Lord together. Father, we come to you in humility, grateful for your grace and your mercy to us, Father. Your word tells us, O Lord, that you are graceful, long-suffering, merciful, patient, abundant in goodness and truth, that you in your great mercy have forgiven us of all of our transgressions, iniquities, and sin. That is a testament of your great mercy, O oh Lord. And Father, we are here recipients of your mercy and your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. He is the Word who's become flesh and dwelt among us. He is worthy of all our praise and adoration. And together, at this moment, O oh Lord, we worship you and we praise you. We thank you for this opportunity for this church to worship and to Think on your word, and we pray, Father, that we would have ears to hear your word today. Father, I pray for this church as they think of a potential transition, that you would give them wisdom, give the leaders and the congregants wisdom and discernment to hear your voice and follow your leadership. And we pray for wisdom for Jeff as he thinks about decisions he could be making. Give them wisdom, peace, and guidance. Father, we we pray for our country, and we ask that our hearts and the hearts of the men and women of this nation would turn to you and be rooted in you. Thank you for the opportunity now, Lord. Blessing God and, and directing Jesus' name, amen. Well, Thank you once again for, for the opportunity to be here. When Jeff asked me to, uh, to speak, I shared with him that we'd focus on the preeminence of Christ, and we're going to do so in sort of a different way. We're going to look at Colossians 1, but we're also going to go to Exodus chapter 17, Psalm 95, Hebrews 3, and Hebrews 4. To tour the Tour of the force all right, and this is the first time by the way, I have preached the same sermon twice. I hope I can remember everything I said the first time, and you get the same dose the second time. We live in a very, very, very important historical cultural moment don 't you think? I shared this with my our son, my dear wife and son are here this morning, and they 've heard this already a second t- the first time, but I shared with my son last night you. have been born and have been living through a very important moment that's unlike the ones I was was going through when I was 13, 14, or 15. You've gone through a pandemic and all that happened with that. Great moments of social and political unrest. Overturning of Roe v. Wade. Right? And What I did not share with him, I will share it with him now to all of you, and let's put our belt buckles on because it's not over yet. I think that the jarring of our culture, society, world will continue for weeks and months and years to come. I don't think we're entering a new era of somehow peace and comfort and neutral cruise control. I think the ground will continue to shift and to be jarred. That's the moment in which we find ourselves now. It's a very serious moment. It's a very serious moment. And I want us to think about how, what are the priorities in our heart this morning and the priorities of our mind. Now I want us to do so by starting to look at Colossians chapter 1. But then I want us to think about the people of Israel and the people of God as they find themselves in certain times of great jarring and trials. But in Colossians chapter 1, we read this text in verse 13. As the Father, Paul writes, the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, His dear Son. Praise God, amen. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created there in heaven and there on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. There's a lot to unpack there, but we get a sense of the greatness of Jesus, yes? Verse 17, and he is before all things, in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I want, I want that to be our bookend tonight, in the beginning and the end, Christ the preeminent one. And I want, I want this question to be floating in our minds and hearts, is Christ truly preeminent in me now? And what do I need to do, or, or, or maybe reframe that, what does God need to do in me so that Christ truly is preeminent in me? But those are the book, our bookends, right? The preeminence of Christ. I speak about this at times. In our, we have a, a theme for Cornerstone next year that we'll be announcing I know I, uh, uh, over the next year, Christ, the greatest influencer. That's our theme for next year. I saw one of our dear faculty members here, please don't tell anyone about that theme yet. It's top secret. Christ, the greatest influencer. And Colossians here, one, in essence, says that, yes? The preeminent one. All things have been made by him. He is before all our things. The most preeminent one, the most influential one, Jesus Christ. Now, those are the bookends, yes? And it's the question I want us to be thinking about. But to do so, I want us to look at the people of Israel in a significant matter situation that occurred in their history and how the Lord through Moses and through David and through the writer of Hebrews engraved something that happened in the granite of history and civilizational history for the people of Israel for us to learn and to remember. I'm an educator. I've been spent 20 years in Christian higher education. I've taught at Division I institutions, Research One institutions, like C- University of Cincinnati. I've taught at private institutions like Cedarville University, Regent. I've spent my 20 years of life doing higher ed. And one of the most important things that we do in education is always transmit values. The core of education is really passing on the values that we hold near and dear that we believe are true and right to the future. Serious business, yes? It's so serious that in our country, we spent about $600 billion on education and higher ed. That's a lot of money. And while we may fight about money and division and so on, at the end of the day, the real fight in higher ed is about values and the transmission of values at the very core. What we hold near and dear, we're going to pass on. That's what education is about. If I may may reframe this, that is what we in our homes and our churches do. We're transmitting values, yes or no. That's what we're doing. We're transmitting values. And those values we transmit in various practices, in things we do, don't do, omit or commit, right? Those values that we transmit and pass on are what our children and future generations grab onto and run with. Serious business, yes? It's so serious. My father, who's 85 years old, doesn't know the Lord. I don't believe he knows the Lord. And I know he's at the end of his life. I could die this evening. I could die right now. But most likely, my father will pass on into eternity first. And my father, in the last few weeks in some very difficult conversations, has shared things with me about his life that happened to him as a child and that 80 years later he's still thinking about. Hmm. Think about that. And the things he's shared with me are the things that his grandmother or his uncle said to him that reflected a callousness and a cruelty toward life and people that he cares with him today. You know what they were doing? They were transmitting values to him. And those things he carried deep within him. So we're going to have an honest conversation today about this issue of transmitting of values. And we're going to start in Exodus chapter 17. Because the Lord in his wisdom is showing us something about the people of Israel... He wants us to remember, and we'll look at Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4. So let's go to Exodus chapter 17. And during this passage of scripture, we know that the people of Israel are now in the wilderness. Now, as we think about their wilderness experience, where they are right now, I want us to then pause and think about the reality that we've been going through some difficult things as a nation in the last two to three years. Yes. I still remember the pandemic March, whenever March 19 or 20 happened. And I remember sitting there in my home in Virginia and walking out one night, driving out one night, when I guess you weren't supposed to drive out, and we're on the highway interstate, and there there are literally no cars anywhere. Did any of you experience that here in Grand Rapids? And I remember thinking, I feel like it was like a zombie movie. You know, the zombie movies? If you watch them, I'm a big zombie movie fan. I remember it was like World War Z or something. Everyone was hiding. (laughs) I remember at that point in time leading Regent University, 11,000 student institution. My boss, CEO, president, who's my dear, dear friend and mentor, Pat Robertson, calls me one morning and says, Brother, I think we're looking at the collapse of the West and of the economic order. Have a good day. (laughs) I remember getting off that phone. I mean, it felt that way, yes? To some degree. I remember thinking, getting off that phone call, thinking about do we shut down this university or not? Every school is shutting down. Do we shut it down? And what do we need to do? But I will tell you, I wasn't thinking about Jesus. I wasn't thinking about God. I wasn't thinking about Regent. You know what I was thinking about? What am I going to do with me? My first way of thinking was survival, my existence. I I believe that I'm not dissimilar to any of you here. My sense is that as human beings, we have that tendency, yes? During times of what I'll call existential threat. We step back and we think, what am I going to do with me? (laughs) I think for the last two to three years, our country our homes, our communities, are, have faced some significant existential questions. And I think we're at a very important moment right now what's happened. That's why I shared before. I think we need to buckle our seat our seatbelts here. But I think that for the next few months, possibly years, we are going to face more. And I think it's important for us to pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question. What are we supposed to do? Right? And how do we live? So as we think about going to Exodus 17 in a moment, I remember as a young man encountering the, the book by Francis Schaefer. Some of you may know that name, Apologist Francis Schaefer and How Shall We Live? How Shall We Then Live? Have you ever remember that? Some of you may remember. I confess that when I, I first encountered Francis Schaefer as an apologist in my days at Cedarville College as a student, right, when I was there. And Jeff Burr and I were there. We had Greek class together, Greek 1 and 2 with Bob Gromacki. But I remember that every, we all had this general education requirement to enter humanities or something like that. And uh, we watched Francis Schaeffer. We watched him. We didn't read the book. They gave us the video series. So you walk into humanities class and you watch Francis Schaeffer talk about the decline of the West and the importance of Christianity and all these wonderful things. But I have a full confession to make. I fell asleep every single time. Because it was an Alford Auditorium, cushy, plushy seats, it was warm, and we just had lunch. And I'd walk in, the lights were dim, I'd slouch back, and I thought, man, it's nap time. And I was gone. And I never grasped the book or the series. Thankfully, I did later on, okay? But as a student, I didn't. I was gone. I was sleeping and all that stuff, right? But I did grasp it later on. And he asks this very profound question. Are civilizations in decline, collapsing, much like the Romans? And how, what are we supposed to do as Christians with this? And how do we live with this? Many years later, someone by the name of Chuck Colson, you know that name, writes a book, similar title, except he inserts the word now. How now shall we then live? Right? And he introduces this other issue of what do we do with the culture and the politics around us? How do we live with what's happening around us? Two very important works. I want to introduce that question for us now because think about this. What's happening with Roe v. Wade and what could continue to happen, it's a very serious moment for our country. But what what I want us to think about is this simple question. The preeminence of Jesus and the preeminence of Jesus Christ in our hearts. I don't want to talk too much about the culture and the politics and the midterm elections, because I will tell you and confess to you that the most important questions right now for us as God's people are not who's going to win in November. Yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, by the way. But I'm simply saying that's not going to be the most important question and whether gas prices go down or up. And whether the Supreme Court to take on a number of other issues that many, many people hold dear and want to take on. The most important question right now, in this very moment, will be at the posture of our hearts toward Jesus Christ. And that's the question I want us to focus on. So let's go to Exodus 17. There, we're told that all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and just share this with you, that this trip, this journey through the wilderness, is by divine design. Do we believe that? It's not accidental. God is leading the people through. And do you think God did not know there would be no water? Of course he did. He's leading them through the wilderness by divine design. I am sure that in this room, all of us right now are going through some kind of wilderness. There's a dear sister who came to say hello to us this morning to introduce herself. And I'm sure you all know that she shared this with me. I looked at my wife and I said, wow, what a heavy load. She said, I love Jeff Burr. He's leaving. I really love Jeff Burr. He helped me through 11 years ago when my daughter died in a car accident. <laughs> wow. Sociologists believe that the greatest pain we ever carry is the death of our child or the death of our spouse. And I have to confess that's one of my secret fears, losing a child. That's a wilderness, don't you think? And it's so near and dear to the sister that still carry, she still carries it. I'm sure that we're all going through wilderness experiences now, all of us. Now, I just want to share this with you. These are not accidents in God's perfect sovereignty and providence. Yeah, I think the things that have happened in the last two to three years in our country, you know, these are not accidental things. So the people are going through the wilderness, and there is no water, and God's committing them to go through. Now, what happens Therefore the people contended with Moses, verse 2, and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? That sounds like a very scary sin to commit. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us out of Egypt, out, up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Existential threat, yes? We're going to die. We're not going to have enough to drink. Our children are going to die. Our livestock may die. Why have you done this? Obviously, we know that the real complaint is not against Moses, right? Who are they complaining against? The Lord. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. That's serious stuff. Have you heard of this thing called hanger, hangry? When you're so hungry you get angry? Some of you are looking at each other, which tells me you know that someone in your life gets hangry sometimes. <laughs> right? I've never experienced this kind of thirst. <laughs> when you're so thirsty that Moses literally believed, they're going to kill me. And that's an essential threat. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also taking your hand, your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. That the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It's amazing to me that during this moment in time, of a great miracle, yes? Another great miracle that Moses does not inscribe in the granite of Israel's history anything about the miracle. He doesn't commemorate this situation by saying God provided water for the people of Israel. What does he commemorate? their sin. Moses, and I will say, the Lord through Moses is trying to communicate, and as you will see here in Psalm 95, and in Hebrews 3 and 4, he's commemorating, reminding, through this very important moment, something the people of Israel did that is a temptation that they will face in the future and that we face now. And he inscribes in this moment, you tempted the Lord. You called into question his existence and his greatness. You fought against him. I'm going to inscribe that into the cornerstone of this chapel. <laughs> I've, never been, I've never seen any cornerstone like that one, by the way. Have you? And I've been through some great chapels and buildings and cathedrals in my life and travels. But you ne- I've never seen that. On this day, March 4, 1954, the people of God in this building rebelled. Have you ever seen a an you know, inscription like that one? Maybe there is. I've never seen one. It's fascinating, important here that Moses does that, though. He inscribes in, in, in the history of the people of Israel the rebellion against God and raises this very profound issue of turning against the Lord. Now, how is it that the future reads this? Let's go to Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, we'll start in verse 7, and we'll read the first seven verses later in the the service, sermon. But now we'll read verse 7 on, because here David, and we know David wrote Psalm 95 because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 and 4 cites David as the writer. And in Psalm 95, we're told the following. In verse 7, second part of verse 7, David writes this. Today, if you will hear his, the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. As in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they should not enter my rest. Serious business, yes? Here the writer of Psalm 95 goes to Exodus 17 and reminds the people of Israel, David, what what their forefathers had transmitted to them. In many ways, the heritage of faith of the early forefathers of the nation was a heritage of hardness of heart. And David lays out: If you hear the Lord's voice, don't do that. What they did. It may be tempting. I've, I've yielded to this temptation before. To think that we do better than Israel. Have you ever gone through a temptation and said that in your heart? I mean, think about Israel. What they saw. They saw the parting of an ocean. Yes? I've never seen that. They saw the Lord demolish at that point in time one of the most powerful, influential civilizations on record. Egypt. Demolished. If you read the world histories by Herodotus, the father of history, an ancient Greek writer, Herodotus, in the world histories, he talks about Egypt and the greatness and influence of Egypt in the ancient world. And God demolishes them. They saw that, yes? The Passover. Water being turned into blood. All the plagues. Then Perhaps the most powerful army in that time, and what do they see? The Lord demolishes them too. Then the Lord, a pillar of fire and a cloud, yes? This is serious stuff. And there are times in my life when I've said, boy, if I would have seen that, I would not turn against the Lord. Have you ever been tempted with that thought? Some of you are much better than I am, I'm sure. But there's a temptation, a tendency for us to look and think, if I saw God do that, if I saw God do that, if I saw God do that. it's, it's, It's a lesson. Here the people of Israel have witnessed God, the awesome God. The one, as the scripture says, that the hills skip away from him in fear, do amazing, great things, and the people of Israel are angry with him. Why did you bring us here to die? Almost about to kill their leader and rejecting him. And here David in Psalm 95 warns the people of Israel on a psalm that's read in the Sabbath, the Sabbath days, Psalm 95. He warns them by saying, if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart. I believe, brothers and sisters, that the most important opportune moment right now in our history, in our culture, in our history, is that one posture of our hearts toward the Lord and this is not to say about the consequential decisions and things that will occur in our country in the world in the days, months, weeks ahead but I believe the most important one, the most consequential one will be the posture of your heart and my heart toward the Lord and that's the question I want us to think about and reflect on today in this afternoon when you're alone and thinking throughout the week Where are our hearts toward God? What's the posture of our hearts toward him? What's the level of hardness of our heart toward the Lord? If the Lord had a hardness probe and lined us all up, all right, I'm going to probe your heart to see how hard it is, where would it be? Where would my heart be? The hardness of heart. This is not just for Israel. We can jump over to Hebrews chapter 3 now. Because in Hebrews chapter 3 and in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews cites Psalm 95 once again. In Hebrews 3, the writer begins... by reminding the people of Israel of the greatness of Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Christ. Hebrews 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest, capital letters of our confession, Christ Jesus. The great one, yes? The high priest, yes? The first one. Who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. You think Moses was great? Yes, he was great, but here's the great one. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house is more honor than the house. And every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. For every house is built by... Oops, sorry, verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which will be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, God himself, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the days of trial in the wilderness. Hardness of heart. I think one of the greatest temptations we have throughout our life as human beings following after the Lord in this historical cultural moment in our country right now is hardness of heart. So I want to try to unpack what this is a little bit in our time together. Hardness of heart. How do we begin to discern what this thing is? I remember, I will tell you, and we're transparent here with you, I've wrestled with this. There's been time in my life where I sensed something in my heart. I sensed what I'll call the following. That too often, I was putting forth a gentle, soft, stiff arm to God in my life. I felt it inside me. The best I can tell you. I would read the word, but I wasn't in it. I would read the text, but I felt in my heart this. Ever so gently and lovingly, I would put up a stiff arm. I was involved in all kinds of Christian work, teaching my kids, educating, all this stuff, but I would sense in my heart that I was resisting God in some way. And there were times in my life where it would terrify me what is happening? How is this happening? And I began to really just cry out, Dear God, I, there is something wrong. <laughs> I sensed this thing. So I began to really look like, what is this? And I came across Psalm 95. And I came across Psalm 95 in studying some of the early church fathers. The early desert fathers. And how they wrestled with hardness of heart in their ministry. And I began to pour and say, God help me. And then I came across a sermon by Charles Finney, in the, eight, in the 1800s, called The Hardness of Heart, in which Charles Finney defines hardness of heart and lays out 22 symptoms of a hard heart. Not two, three, four, or five, 22. I would encourage you to look it up when you have some time. The Hardness of Heart by Finney, and read The Hardness of Heart. I read those 22 symptoms and I said, I, I said Lord, I, I'm guilty of at least 21 of them. It was not just mind numbing and mind blowing. I remember the weight of my shame when I realized, Lord, I have a very hard heart. How did I let this happen? So I want to read to you a little bit of what Charles Finney says in in that sermon, The Hardness of Heart. I will share with you what he says at the very end of the sermon where he says, now please remember that hardness of heart is a voluntary state of mind. Voluntary state of mind, he says. It's something that we choose to do, that we allow to do. That creeps in and we let it creep in. It is a state of mind that continually resists the Holy Spirit. When I read that, I got nervous. Is it really possible, Lord, that I would resist you and your Spirit? Is it really possible, Lord, that I could be so depraved, so hard, so rebellious, that I would resist you and your Spirit? Guess what? The answer is yes. And I don't think that the Lord would have put this in Exodus 17, Psalm 95, Hebrews 3 and 4, many other places, unless he's not trying to warn every single one of us that we are all susceptible to the hardness of heart. That we're all susceptible in a voluntary state of will, choosing at times, perhaps consistently, to do this to God. To resist the demands of his love, the demands of his grace, the demands of his son Jesus. So I will tell you openly, because confession is good, I have done that. And now I find myself crying out to God every day, regularly, Dear Lord, help me and deliver me and show me so that I don't do that. I'll I'll finish what he says. A state of mind that continually resists the Holy Spirit is self-justifying, cruel. It grieves, it dishonors God. It ruins the souls of men. Now, we may be tempted to think, well, Finney's one of those 1800 kind of guys. You know, those 19th century guys were just, they were kind of harsh. They were just, they were harsh. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are very clear. When When the writer of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit says, don't harden your heart, the Lord's warning us. That the hardness of heart is such a grave sin that it's not just resisting God; is voluntarily walking into the destruction of our own souls and hearts. Think about that—that's serious business. So I say that with all the energy in me, brothers and sisters, that the crisis of our country, and our churches, and our homes—I think is a crisis of hardness of heart. And I think we have to take this so seriously in our lives. And I've come also to the conclusion, and we'll go, let's go back, and if you read Hebrews 3 and 4, I'll, I'll touch base back on Hebrews 4 later on, but let's go back to Psalm 95. I'm, I'm more convinced now than ever that the hardness of heart and our ability to discern whether we have that or not is, is God bringing that to our attention. Because the hardness of hearts dulls our eyes, deafens our ears. That's what it does. We sang that song, I Love Your Voice, O Lord. Beautiful song, Craig. I think I told you in the first service. I remember the second first service. It's easy to sing those things and have deaf ears and blind eyes. Don't you think? The hardness of hearts literally destroys our ability and our desire for God. It hardens all of us. Now, as I shared with you, I've come to the conclusion that this is something that's so serious, so evil, such an enemy of the heart and soul, that it requires that we have a particular posture toward God. Because only God can heal us from it. We can't heal ourselves from this. God has to heal our souls and renew our souls. Psalm 95, we'll read the first seven verses because it's interesting that when David writes to me Psalm 95, he doesn't start with this warning. He actually leads you through the kind of posture we should have toward God, and then in 7 verse 7 introduces the warning, right? So from verse 1 to verse 7, this wonderful psalm that's read in in, in, in Sabbath and is read by monks throughout the world. They read the first three verses usually every day. Psalm ninety-five. It starts, "O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the Rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms." I believe that one of the requirements, prerequisites that God gives to us. To eliminate, destroy a hard heart and hardness of heart are those first three verses. It is a posture of always living before the Lord. Think about verse one, brothers and sisters. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Oh, come, let us sing to the self existing one to the one who causes everything to be. Significant? If I can just ramp it up a little bit more. Oh, come and sing to the one whose name you better never take in vain. Ramp it up a little bit more. Oh, come and sing to the one that you better have nothing else between you and him. And nothing more preeminent than him. And make no image of him. That's hard to understand, by the way. The greatness and purity of God that we have to even be careful about how we say his name or when we say his name. Beautiful little baby. The baby's in action right now. The baby's saying amen, amen, and amen Amen. in baby language. (laughs) But isn't it amazing, though? I mean, this is the way David asks. Live before him. Sing to him. Come before him. Before his presence. It's, you know, we sing this song, we invite you into our, we don't invite God into anything. He's always there. We better be the ones who are, remind ourselves of that, that we're always living before him. In those three, three, first three verses, David lays out this very profound truth. Remember the Lord, the one who exists, who causes everything to be, who's giving you your existence, your being, your life, who is the rock of your salvation, David's saying. Sing to him, thank him, come into his presence. He's always there. That's the start. I want to share with you that the hardness of heart, one of the first antidotes and cures is remembering that and acting on that right now. That we commit ourselves to come before him and live our life before him in such a profound way that every time we turn the radio on, that thing that comes out of that radio, we remember God's hearing that thing. That's a little scary. Yes? Or no? No? This is not about legalism or fundamentalism, brothers and sisters, because I've been through all those wars and battles in my life. But there are times when I have heard music that I have played in my life, and I think those things should never be repeated. Why am I allowing them to be repeated through my radio station? I've asked myself that question, and it's a convicting question. And here the Lord is saying to us, come before me in thanksgiving. Come before me in praise. What do we do when we praise? We affirm something, yes? With all of our being. We say, that's good. That's beautiful. That's true. All of us. That's the first anecdote. I want to encourage you to think about this today in your time this afternoon, this week. And to reorient your life. May We reorient our lives so that we are always thinking and living before him, realizing that he's always present. Then, we're told here in in Psalms 4, 3 to uh, 7, For the Lord is the great God, a great king of of all gods. He's sovereign, in other words, over everything. And then these wonderful passages of scripture that reminds us of Psalm 19. The deepest parts of the earth are in his hand. Have any of you ever been to a mine before? Any? A few. Mines are scary places, that's all I'll say, all right? I've been through a few mines, and I don't like them because when you've been, you're down deep, you think, what happens if this thing collapses? Yeah, I don't make it out. I come from Columbia, South America, where mines used to collapse all the time, <laughs> all right? and yeah, I remember being some of those, just touring or whatever, and I thought, this could be me. I, could, I may never get out of this place. And there are deeper places than that. And the psalmist is saying something profound to us. The deepest places of the earth are in God's hands. The height of the mountains, he says, the strength of the hills are in his hands. The sea and all that's in it, he made. He made the entire earth. What's he saying? Nothing escapes him. That's the Lord. And then he adds something, and he is our creator and our maker. We belong to his pasture and his flock. We have to remember to whom we belong. The greatest crisis in our country right now, I believe, is that we as God's people have forgotten we're God's people. We believe we belong to this particular tribe and clan. And God's ownership of us through his son Jesus Places certain demands on how we are to live and think. And if we resist those demands, guess what happens? Our hearts get hard. The greatest crisis to me is more, it's a membership one. <laughs> we belong to God. Let me just add a, add a few layers to that. When was the last time, brothers and sisters, that we asked the Lord to show us the deepest caverns of our heart and mind. It's a scary thing, by the way. Augustine in the Confessions, book 10 of the Confessions, Augustine's thinking about his consciousness, his mind, and he says he begins to try to understand his mind and his consciousness, and he says, the more I think about my mind, my heart, my consciousness, he says, the more deep, deeper caverns I find within myself. And I go into them and I find more caverns and more and more and more. And he says, it's so much I cannot know myself. And he cries out, God, please help me. Why does he say that? Because only the Lord knows those caverns. I think there's a point of David here. If the deepest parts of the earth are in his hand, guess what? The deepest caverns of our hearts and minds are in his hand too. And why is that beautiful? Because only the Lord can clean those things up. Only the Lord can heal those things. Only the Lord can strengthen our hearts so that our mind, the minds of our heart don't collapse on us because of the foolish things we do. And David literally in these first seven verses laying out the greatness of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, the goodness of God. The fact that we're designed by him and our purposes are from him. And the healing that will cont- happen to us is when we go to him and rest in him and live before him so that verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 don't happen to us. I'll close because I think i have taken much more time than I should, Craig, so I apologize, everyone forgive me. This is interesting because in Hebrews chapter 4, if we were to go to Hebrews chapter 4, the same passage of Scripture is brought up in Hebrews chapter 4. I mean, when the Lord, through His Spirit, reminds you of the same verses twice in a row, stop, pay attention. For chapter 4, He does the same thing, and in chapter 4, the word of God, chapter closes with this incredible reminder. It reminds you of Galatians 6.9, Do not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The wonderful verse in Galatians 6.9, right? Hebrews, the last three or four verses of Hebrews chapter 4, it's almost as if the writer is saying the same thing. Hold on to your faith. Don't, get, don't let your heart get so hard that you resist the Lord, and you, and you allow unbelief to come into you. One of the great crises. And then he says, remember Jesus who suffered in every way, was tempted in every way, yet without sin, but he's been touched by the feeling of your infirmities. So yes, you're going through a wilderness, you will continue to go through wildernesses, don't let unbelief and hardness enter you. Remember Jesus who went through wilderness too faithfully. Amen. And then he closes with this verse of scripture, which is another antidote to a hardness of heart. He says, Therefore, let us come boldly into the throne of grace. I've heard it scripture said many times, and it's a beautiful scripture. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer ends chapter 4 with that verse to remind us. That the antidote for unbelief, for hardness of heart, is living in the presence of God before the throne of his grace every day continually. And that means a posture of humbly seeking the Lord in prayer. When you read the Desert Fathers, one of the antidotes they had toward hardness of heart, you know what it was? Weeping over one sin and prayer, 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 prayer. Because prayer cements in us humility and, a, and, a, and an attitude of desperate need for the Lord. And folks, we need to pray way more than we pray. We need to pray way more than we pray. And by this I mean really pray of crying out to God. We need to ask, Lord, to heal our hearts. And Lord, show us truly, Lord, as David cries out, search me, O Lord. And that's why I would encourage you to do, all of us today, God, search our hearts. If there's any wicked, hard way in us, show it to us. Heal us from it. Deliver us from it. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that it is these decisions that we make about our hearts will have ramifications on our children's life, on our family's life, on future generations. My father, 85 years old, still remembers what his uncle and his grandmother said to him when he was five and six. Terrible things they said to him, and he still remembers them. Transmission of values. Praise the Lord that he's made a way, amen? So I would encourage us all to come before the Lord today, the days ahead. Lord, work in our hearts, yes?